Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am your co-host sitting here with Aaron Cameron. And this episode is sponsored today by Yardy. This is a new one for us. We welcome them to the sponsorship of the podcast and thank them for it. We have a returning guest today, Jamie McKenna, who last appeared on our podcast when she was with Minto. She's now with Fengate Capital Management, and her title there is Managing Director of Group Head of Real Estate. So welcome back to the show, Jamie. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. Before we proceed, let me have the honor of introducing my co-host, Adam Pawadek. I forgot. I named everybody but myself. Yes, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> You're selfless. You're so selfless. <laughs> Sorry, Jamie. Go. See? Yeah. <laughs> So it is worth mentioning as well, obviously, you know, COVID-19 is a hot topic, obviously, on the podcast going forward. And I feel a necessity to timestamp these recordings because things are moving so quickly. So today is April 1 and everything said today only applies April 1 backwards. And, uh, you know, April the 3rd, everything can be different. But at least we'll talk about the way the world is today. But usually when we have returning guests on, we don't do their background, but usually returning guests are at the same company. So since you had a, a major change, you know, I'll encourage listeners to go back and listen to your first episode to get your backstory there. And if for a podcast today, we'd ask you to kind of continue on from where we left off our last podcast at the time you were with Minto. It'd be great to hear you know, what's transpired between then and now. Sure. It's kind of like Jamie McKenna part two. So I'll assume everybody has seen the prequel, but I joined Fengate seven months ago. I did not anticipate a global pandemic six months into my new job. So it's been an exciting but obviously challenging and some days frustrating experience. But yeah, I joined Fengate uh, in late August last year. It was it was a bit of a whirlwind and I almost call it serendipitous that loved my job at Minto, love everybody there and wasn't looking to leave. Everything was going great with the IPO, still is going great with the IPO. And I got a, a call from who is now probably a close personal friend to to meet about an opportunity. And I was actually not meeting about the opportunity. I was really interested in her firm because it was an all-women firm, recruitment firm. So we just met casually, had a coffee, and she said, you need to meet Lou Serafini. And I'm like, okay, sure, that sounds great one day. And she said, no, today, you're going to meet him today. So that afternoon, I went in to meet Lou casually, and actually the CFO Pranav was there as well. And they told me how they were looking to bring somebody in to lead their real estate practice um, that had grown quite aggressively over the last number of years. And we just hit it off personally. There was a great chemistry, and I loved what Lou wanted to do with the business. And it actually reminded me of what we did with Minto in, in that you know we grew our institutional platform or we developed an institutional platform. We raised institutional capital and eventually led to the IPO. And Fengate, I would say, is a lot further along than Minto was when I joined, but it had that familiar feeling of an opportunity to build something that I could leave a legacy on. And it was just an exciting story. So I went home and grappled about it for quite a while and kept talking to them. And I think we just, the people and the opportunity really, really was interesting to me. And I had to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm 41. I was 40, I guess at the time, I'll admit my age. And 
if I'm going to make a career change, this is probably the time to do it. So I, with a very sick stomach, I went in and resigned at Minto. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done because, you know, Roger Greenberg has been, I've learned under his wing and Michael Waters and all the people I worked with there, they were like family to me. And I think I actually got a little teary eyed, which they got a bit of a kick out of because I wasn't much of a crier, but it was hard. But I can say that I, I left on good terms. I still meet Roger every once in a while for coffee or dinner. He's a real mentor to me. I still meet my mental colleagues more as friends now than colleagues in the industry. And we, it's a bit funny because we have to be careful what we do and don't say to each other. But here I am at Fengate and it's been a whirlwind. Like I said, the COVID situation wasn't something we anticipated, but it really has tested your leadership skills too. You could be going down one road, which we were, and really have to pivot in a different direction. It tests you, it tests your team. It really shows who does and doesn't have the company and each other's best interests in mind. And like I said, I've said to my team, we got to check our egos at the door because this is about doing the right thing and navigating the situation and has nothing to do with who's going to get ahead. It's doing the right thing for the company. It, it is amazing how, you know, we always talk about, you know, we say it notionally historically anyways, that real estate is about relationships in such a small community. And it's all about, you know, the people that you know and the people you want to work with. But then you get into situations like this and, and I think it, it tests those relationships and you really, you really start to find out that who your true friends were and who weren't and who was being opportunistic at the time and, and whatnot. You know, before we get into COVID, I think that's a larger conversation, clearly given the situation. But, you know, I have two comments. One, it meant a personal move too. If I remember correctly, you were based in Ottawa. So it wasn't just about, you know, a career shift, but it meant, you know, picking the family up and moving. Is that true? It's actually even crazier than that. I didn't move my family and I rented an apartment, a Minto apartment in Toronto. So I actually, other than right now, I usually fly in Monday mornings and I fly home Thursday nights. And uh, so I have not been home in Ottawa like I have been for months and months and months. So there's kind of a silver lining then. You're happy to be home. I am, but I think my husband's getting a little bit tired of it. (laughs) Ah, Yeah, I think all significant others around the world are feeling the same way right now. It's true, it's true. Again, before we go to COVID, let's talk about Fengate. I mean, you kind of mentioned the culture as being a main attraction for you. Maybe talk about just their real estate practice, their approach to the business, maybe some other attributes that just you found so attractive to make the move. Sure. So it's interesting when I joined because the first thing out of every two things people would say to me, one was, why'd you leave Minto? And two, I didn't know there was such a big real estate practice at Fengate. So Fengate has been known for their infrastructure practice. They launched that in, I believe it was 2006. They really took off with it and it grew to $15 billion of gross asset value. And all along the real estate practice was there. And the interesting thing about real estate at Fengate is that's how they started. So Fengate started in real estate in the 70s as a property manager, a lot of suburban office, industrial properties, and it kind of bubbled along for a few decades and grew a piece at a time, piece at a time. And then in the mid-2000s, so probably around the same time as the infrastructure practice, they raised institutional capital from Liuna, so the laborers' pension plan. Mm. And from there, it's just taken off. So today, the real estate practice, we have about $5 billion, we call it completed value, in projects. It's a mix of stabilized and development projects. We have 15 developments in various stages right now, largely in the residential asset class. And then we have a large core portfolio of, of, again, suburban office and industrial and 
teeny little bit of retail. The way we are structured is a series of funds. And so we have a what I would call a core fund, which is the office and industrial I mentioned. We have two development funds, so two closed-ended development funds. We have a student housing fund, and we also have um, Seasons, which is a seniors, a seniors home facility. Not one facility, it's actually about 25 of them across Ontario and, and Alberta. So it's quite a large practice, but has been going under the radar for many years. And one of my initiatives or a couple of my initiatives are Lyon has been an unbelievable investor. And, you know, I can't thank Joe Mancinelli enough for everything he's done to help grow this business and continues to, to re-up his investment every single year. But we also want to diversify that investor base, which is good both for Lyon and for Fangate. So when I joined, part of my goals are to raise capital pre-COVID. So... I'll come back to that, um, as well as accelerate our growth in terms of how we're deploying capital. So we do have quite a bit of dry powder available to us. So how do we accelerate that while still maintaining the investment returns and performance that we have been? So if we were to, I guess, a, a transition into COVID anyway, of all those asset classes that you're mixing it up in, which ones are giving you the, the most, we'll call it problems right now? Which one is occupying most of your time outsized relative to your portfolio? Well, so retail, like I said, is very small and, and has been the hardest hit and was the one we saw the fastest impact on. We were getting requests for rent relief before it was really even a major news item because of restaurants and, and even just the retail portfolio in general was struggling. Shortly thereafter, we actually started to see the office portfolio start to struggle a bit. In a lot of cases, tenants were just saying, you know, we don't need forgiveness. We just need restructuring it because a lot of our tenants relied on oil and gas. So they might be, you know, professional services that support the oil and gas side of things or food and beverage or fitness. So I'd say out of our entire stabilized portfolio, about 30% of them have been requesting some form of rent relief. On the seniors housing front, less so, because most of the people that live in a senior's home are retired and living off that income anyway. But we are seeing some cases where families are saying, we're just going to bring mom home. So we're just managing that and giving them the confidence from that standpoint. Student housing is probably going to be the hardest one for us. It's not that we're being asked for relief. It's that our leasing season has evaporated. So all our leasing happens between sort of April and May and everybody got sent home and we don't know when they're going to come back. So we're just not sure how that's going to work because they're still going to need housing in the new year, in the new school year. But how do we get that connection with them so that we lease up? So it's either going to be like, mania through the summer or we're not quite sure what, but we do think that one's probably the most unpredictable for us. And how are you structuring? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, we as lenders, we're looking at structures, but they're not all straightforward. So what are you doing with tenants, you know, other than just the straightforward deferrals? Is there anything innovative you brought to the space of deferrals that's now the forefront of real estate? I would love to say it's innovative, but I feel like I've heard all my colleagues in the industry say the same things. We sort of look at it in three categories. We, you know, we offer deferral till year end. We're offering to apply security deposits, especially if they just think it's one month. And then on the shorter terms, we're doing a blend and extend where we'll extend the lease, amortize it over the period of terms of the lease. And everybody, really what we're looking at is what is the financial situation? What's the viability of the company outside the current COVID situation? But it, what's challenging, I think, and other landlords will say the same is every single case is different. You have to look at every single one. In apartments, you can kind of sort of say, you know, we're going to give a blanket policy, but with commercial, every single tenant has different fact patterns associated with it. Are there tenants that have come forward where you said, no, I, I would expect you to have the 
cash reserves to continue to make your payments, so I'm not going to give you relief right now? Or is it really more, we're all kind of approaching this with compassion and, and trying to give everybody a little bit of a discount? I've definitely had tenants come that are still open and I know are still doing very fine financially. So I think everybody is looking at it as an opportunity. I mean, I guess you'd be crazy not to ask, right? Like I think Mm -hmm. my parents always said, well, you're not going to get anything if you don't ask for it. So I have had some large national tenants that I know are still open ask and we've kind of pushed back and said, you know, you've got to realize like the real estate economy, any economy, we're all dependent on each other. So I'm not flush with cash. So if I'm not getting your rent, my pensioners could be impacted on their investment returns. So we're all dependent on each other. So we have to make the right decisions because you know, the laborers that rely on Layuna to pay a pension rely on me to drive an investment return. So we, we but at the same time, from a social and from a responsibility standpoint, we want to make sure we do everything we can to help our tenants stay viable. You know, I, and, then, I, and if you're doing a, uh, a deferral till the end of the year, how long do you expect the clawback period for that deferral to be? Like where, uh, how long do you recover the, uh, the amount deferred? So in the case of where we're applying a security deposit, we're expecting basically December rent to be doubled up. Alternatively, we've offered sort of two different terms. We've said 12 months, we'll amortize it over that period of time and there's one interest rate implication and then 24 months would be a bigger interest rate implication. Okay. Aaron? Yeah, I was going to say, well, I mean, maybe my brain goes to, you know, talking about with these, your own personal sort of cash flow disruptions from your tenant requests, but yet your sort of conflicting requirement to continue to drive returns for your pension plan. How are you kind of handling the near term? Like you kind of indicated off air that you're, you are open for business. So what does that look like? What is the approach right now to continue to at least try to find opportunities in the marketplace? So it's interesting because the fund which we have, our tenant deferral situation is separate from our current fund where we're deploying capital. So there's literally two exact opposite approaches that we're taking is in in our core fund where we're managing our tenants that are asking for deferrals. We've taken a very conservative approach to do a 12-month and then a 24-month COVID cash flow forecast that says, what if this keeps happening for 12 months? What if it keeps happening for 24 months? Oh, geez, months? I, I sure hope not, Jamie. I know, <laughs> I know. But but it, the, the follow-on impacts could be there for that period of time. So yeah. if we don't get back to work for six months or people don't get back to work till six months and then I have defaults and then, you know, then I've got to catch up on vacancy. So what we've said is, you know, what does that look like? And we're comfortable we can weather that storm because we have been very, very conservative on that balance sheet. We're very low leverage. You guys are part of our leverage, but uh, we're very low leverage on that balance sheet, which is helping us that if we see values drop, if we see cash flows drop. On the development side, it's a bit of the opposite. So our concern was if construction sites got shut down and they haven't been, We've been very vocal about health and safety on our sites. You know, again, our pensioners that we're managing their money for, we need to make sure that they're being kept safe. So proper health and safety practices, but that actually can cause impacts on the timelines of your development because if you can't have as many people on site, you know, it takes a little bit longer to do things. But we do have dry powder on that side. And at the end of last year, I put a big push on the team to say, I want to get out about three times as much commitment in capital this in 2020 versus what we've done in the past as Fengate. And, you know, we went really hard. And as a result, we built an amazing pipeline. And 
the pipeline is a mix of largely residential, some mixed use. And now we're in a position where my investments team are still busy because we're working these deals and we're making sure we're getting the right value given the current environment. We can't buy necessarily at pre-COVID prices. And you know we're going to continue to push and, and continue to be active in the marketplace. But again, value is going to be the key to where we invest. Which asset class do you find most exciting from an acquisition standpoint right now? So we've, say, we've apartments. Lo- say apartments. Say apartments. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> well, I happen to really like residential. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. So, so ironically, most of our investments in the development side have been residential apartments and condos. We so we have morphed on the development side. We used to be very much passive capital, and in house, we've built out a platform that we partner with developers, but we're also able to do developments on our own. We have an in house development vice president and team. So it has been really all apartments and one large mixed use. But really the angle Fangate has that's a bit different than our peers in the industry is because we have that infrastructure practice and we have the real estate practice, we can really city build. And, you know, we can take on opportunities where infrastructure may have done their piece, but there's a residential component attached to it that we can leverage. So there's not a lot of firms that we compete with that can do both parts. So that's a bit of an advantage is that we we almost have an exponential growth to our pipeline because both practices are under one roof. When you made this transition, was there a surprise? Because I mean, it doesn't sound terribly dissimilar to kind of the role you had at Minto with for the deployment of capital and managing different funds and looking for opportunities. And I think at Minto, you, you had sort of number of different asset classes you were focused on, if I remember correctly. Was there a big change? Like, Was there or, or sorry, a big surprise in between the two firms? Or is it kind of, you know, and maybe I'm asking this simply because I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar with the role, but is it really, again, let me rephrase this. I think if I jump from one lender to the other, I would anticipate it probably to be more or less the same because all lenders typically, I think, act and behave the same, but maybe I'm wrong. Was there something that you were surprised by when you made the jump? So I would say out of the gate, no. I was like you. I went in, it's the it's the same ministry, it's the same people. When I was at Minto, I kind of did each piece of the job independently. So, you know, worked with in the asset management operations environment, worked within the accounting environment, worked within the investments environment. Here, I oversee all of them at the same time. So I would say just division of my own personal attention is trying to make sure how much time do I need to spend on the asset management, risk management of the existing portfolio versus sourcing deals versus sourcing capital. So that would be just, I wouldn't say that was a surprise. It was just trying to figure that component out. I would say I run more. <laughs> and I don't know uh, if it's because I'm in a different city or what, but I feel like I, I'm running more. <laughs> you've got no husband and kids to distract you. That's why. I, I think that's what it is. I really, I say that because I say to Lou, my boss, I'm like, look, you've got a hundred percent of me 24 seven for four days a week. Like I'm bored at night. So, <laughs> so I'm here to work and take dinners and meetings and, but no, it's, I mean, it's different people. I would say that the thing that the moment of, pause I had was, I remember it was in December, we were sitting around as the executive team and kind of talking about what we want to do differently, what we learned from the year. And at that moment, I realized how hard the transition had been in that everything was different, where I lived, who I worked with, the company, and I was finally feeling comfortable in my skin. And I, it was just a real moment I had where I was like, that was harder than I think I was admitting until now. And now I feel like I work with my friends again. I feel like I know the history of the business. Still a little dodgy on some details, whereas Minto, I knew you know every nook and cranny, but learning still. Yeah, you mentioned sitting around at the end of the year and 
and reflecting what you learned December 2020. What do you think is going to be uh, discussed then about uh, what you learned about stepping into a new role right before a crisis hits? I know we're early days still, but what do you think some of the learnings you've had would be? Well, it's funny as I joined Minto in 2008. So what I would say is anytime I change a job, sell your portfolio because apparently there's some kind of massive crisis that's going to follow. I would say looking back, one thing would be you really learn your team and your team's strengths because you're there for each other and you're not, you know, taking coffees and going to dinners and going to conferences and just kind of running as much anymore. You're face to face and all your titles fall to the wayside and you're really just focused on a common goal. So I would say, make sure you have the right team around you. And I did make changes when I first joined and I'm really happy with the team I have. We have very passionate discussions and but it feels like a real family. So I think I would anchor on that. The other thing I would say, and I credit Lou to this, is he's done an amazing job setting up Fengate for success. And just like I've done on the real estate portfolio, he's done the stress testing on the on the Fengate as a business. And he's been conservative with debt. He's been conservative with expenses. And he's built a practice around the asset classes that are really going to come through in a crisis. And you know, I think some days when you're in the heat of the market and you see these amazing returns from you know, non-real estate, non-infrastructure type businesses, you get a little bit jealous. And then, you know, something like this happens and rent's still being collected and roads are still being built. And you remember why you were, you are part of this asset class. And on that topic of safety and asset classes, we've mentioned, obviously, you have an industrial portfolio, but we didn't really talk too much about it. I've heard anecdotally that industrials proved more resilient than the other asset classes with what's happened. Can you comment on what you're seeing in, in your industrial portfolio? Yeah. So we actually hadn't seen, and I haven't seen the April rent roll payments yet because it's only April 1st, like you said, but up until yesterday, we hadn't had any deferrals requests from the industrial portfolio. So I think the only thing we're concerned about would be temporary supply chain, the supply chain impacts that impact our tenants. But you know, the reality is, is that all indications are our industrial portfolio will weather the storm quite nicely. And on top of that, that would be the other asset class outside of residential that we would be growing it. I mean, there's no indication why industrial won't continue to be as hot as ever. And in your portfolio, is there any uh, asset class you'd be looking to sell? We actually have a series of assets through an asset management work we did that we've set up. We call them the non-core assets where we've identified assets to sell, but they're not one specific class. They're a little bit of everything, just something that's either we don't have enough scale around it, something that just is not the tenant base we're looking for, not institutional. We had it all set to come to market and about a month ago. We chose to maybe put a pause on that for a little bit. <laughs> so we'll chat about that maybe in six months from now. <laughs> okay. Is that what you envision would be a kind of a six-month pause on taking it to market? Is that uh, realistic? Yeah. So we, what we did is I kind of said, well, let's pretend we are going to bring it to market and get it ready. We'll meet with brokers. We'll get it valued, all those things. And then, like everybody says, the bottom of this is going to be at the end of Q2. We're going to really feel hopefully at the bottom of the U and not the bottom of the L. And we can really see smoke clears. Where When do we want to come back out? I'm conscious of being the first to market with a series of dispositions because I don't want that to be an indication of what Fengate's view of the market is. It's just its legacy decision that we made a number of months ago to shed a few assets. So we'll probably be a little bit conscious of that in, in terms of timing. We're not we don't need the liquidity. We're not anxious. It was just a bit of a balance sheet cleanup. Yeah, I, I had a broker talking about advising their clients to kind of hold off. You don't want to be the first ones back out because you may look eager or you know may appear that you need to sell something because you've got sort of a sort of a, a cash situation but 
you don't want to be too far behind too. Because I feel like with everybody on pause, there's a lot of groups like yourself that are sitting on assets they're looking to dispose of and there's going to be a flood at some point. I just don't know what that looks like. And then the next question is, what are cap rates? What are spreads in the interest rate environment? Like, what is all that? How does that all, you know, kind of play itself out over the next sort of two, three, six, eight, twelve months? Well, and to your point, you've it really demonstrates why real estate's a long-term asset class. Because if you look at our core fund, we actually have done a bunch of sensitivities, as I imagine everybody is in the industry, and you know, we played with cap rates, twenty-five basis points, fifty basis points. And of course, in the next 12 to 24 months, it's devastating on your returns. But if you look on a 10-year basis, it's sort of a blip. So that's been our view. I mean, where we're concerned is our development funds, if it was a liquid, self-liquidating asset like a condo and whether condo pricing is going to take a major hit. But what we've done is most of our properties that are currently being developed, condo properties have been largely pre-sold. So we feel insulated there. And the rest have been mainly apartments or site servicing. So we stress test it, but any kind of impact on cap rates, I believe are going to be just short term. I mean, you mentioned development. What proportion of your your funds or your your sort of your assets right now are under under development? Is there a big exposure to that? Because I, I think some of our clients yeah. starting to get concerned about. Um, so we, sorry, starting to get concerned about you know if construction halts and then what that does just to your cash reserves. So it's funny. We actually have been. We have 15 different development projects in different stages. Some are land servicing, so we're not as concerned about those. So about, I'd say half of the portfolio are in the type of servicing or early planning construction phases that we're not concerned because things will still progress. We don't necessarily have feet on the sites. We're probably a little bit more concerned about backup in the municipalities, but we tested the timing sensitivities on those and the impact to the IRR. Even if we're shut down for three to six months and we're carrying some costs associated with equipment rentals or whatever, the impact on the returns isn't material in those cases. But the other half, which are active construction projects, it's less the delays that are of a concern to us. It's where is the market when we crystallize that value. So an apartment building where, you know, we had assumed a four cap and certain rent growth, and now all of a sudden rent growth is stalled or even contracting, we've got to really accept that our development returns might not be what we expected, but it's still a good 10-year, 20-year, 30-year asset to hold. And then I guess on condos, it's the concern that there's sort of, and I forget the technical term, but sort of out clauses on the individual condo purchases. But usually those are sort of six to 12 months out. So hopefully any disruption is, is shorter than that. Yeah, we actually, one of our projects on Lakeshore, the Mirabella condos that are going up, we actually sold two units in the last two weeks. So, you know, there's still activity and we haven't had any defaults yet. So it's, the market's slowed, but it's still there. Yeah. What I'm, I would be more concerned about is we did look at a, a pretty high-end condo development and it, all the fundamentals looked amazing and, you know, with everything going on in the GTA, but we just hit a pause and we might come back to it, but we hit a pause because the sensitivity of returns on condo pricing was just too high. And we just thought, you know, we just, just let's see where this all lands. Can you put a per square foot value on what you were kind of thinking at the time? I mean, this is probably obviously pre-COVID, but as a benchmark, what were you thinking? Like 1400 1500 bucks per square foot in the sort of the downtown core area? Just a little bit below that, but, okay. but you're in the range yeah. for sure. Interesting. You know, one topic I think we've kind of skipped over, but we're sort of on it with returns right now. Your relationship with Luna, maybe just talk about how that got started. If that was the root of Fengate and, you know, is that an exclusive relationship? What does that look like? And maybe you can frame it around your historic experiences with, you know, managing sort of the more of a REIT return requirement or sort of ownership, if I will, versus now sort of more pension fund ownership. 
Sure. So the relationship with Lyuna goes way back, and I can really credit Lou developing that alongside Joe Mancinelli again in the early 2000s. And you know, Lyuna gave us our first tranche of capital, which is how we started to build the core fund. They have really been our dominant investor on the real estate side since then. On the infrastructure side, they started with Lyuna, but they since have diversified, and I believe they have over 30 different investors through a series of funds. So the, I mean, Lyuna again has been so supportive, and they've been the seed capital to all the different funds on the real estate side. But we did make the decision probably about two years ago that we wanted to start to pursue a strategy to diversify our capital base. And they have been supportive of doing so as well. And, you know, we have a gentleman's agreement that as we pursue other institutional capital, that we will continue to connect with Layuna to make sure that they're like-minded from an investment philosophy and so on, which is important when you're raising private capital. You want to have investors that like each other, that have similar strategies, similar needs, because otherwise it's really hard to have a consistent investment philosophy. So they've been supportive. We actually haven't gone out to raise the capital yet. Uh, We've started to have some conversations. We were doing that this year and some things changed. So the good thing is we're anchored with great private capital through Lyona. We just, we need to make the decision where we start to go and get broader than that. And the reality is it's a function. Our deals are getting really big. And we need multiple investors to take down, like I said, these city building, urban mixed use projects that we can't just keep relying on Lyuna all the time as these projects get bigger. So we're hoping to find like-minded investors. What I love about the Fengate story is we're coming out having raised institutional capital, having deployed institutional capital, great track record. Like we're really a mature money manager, real estate manager out of the gate, as opposed to, to kind of starting from scratch, which some of the people that are in a position to raise capital are. Great. Well, I think we'll end it there. That's about 30 minutes. So thank you very much, Jamie, for coming on. Um, thank you. That was great. A really interesting conversation. I'd like to yeah, thank if, first... If, if all you don't switch jobs anytime soon, then we won't have you back on right away, but <laughs> it'd be well, great to kind of catch you, up in a year. Can you let us know the... so that I can diversify my portfolio before <laughs> you do? <laughs> yeah, I like to keep it to once every 11 years. So uh, okay. I'm not... Gonna Mark that again. down in your calendar, guys. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sell everything in the, in the exactly. 10 years, 10 months from now. Anyway, so thank you to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you to Yardi for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, and of course, thank you to Real Estate Forum for all their support with the podcast. And thank you to Adam for being our selfless co-host. And thanks, Jamie, again. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.